Easter is only six weeks away. We're already starting to see the decorations in store, the Easter bunnies on the shelves, chocolate bunnies, Easter basket and eggs and all the beautiful pastel colors that are out there, spring break, vacations. Isn't Easter great? I would venture to say that if you did a random interview with people on the street and ask them the meaning of Easter, for the most part, that's probably what you would get. Spring break, chocolate bunnies, Easter egg hunts, fun. Don't get me wrong, I, I love chocolate. I love eggs. I love bunnies. But how did we get to this point? How did a rabbit replace Jesus? And who was behind that atrocity? In the spiritual realm, and therefore in the realm of mankind, who was behind the, transform, the transformation of Easter in our country and then kind of spread out from there? Who does it benefit if people are not looking at Jesus, but rather looking at bunnies? Who does it benefit for people not to believe in Jesus Christ and what he accomplished on the cross? i tell you one thing, it wasn't God. And I think you'd find it hard-pressed probably to find very many people out in the street today who could tell you something basic about the meaning of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. There may even be a majority who would have really no clue. So what does the death of Christ mean? What does the resurrection of Christ mean? I mean, if there were, as history tells us, about three, excuse me, 30,000 Jews crucified in the, around the time of Jesus Christ, why is it that we only remember one? Why don't we know any of the names of the other 30,000? We don't even know the names of the two thieves that were crucified on each side of Christ on that day. So where do we find out the meaning of the cross, of the crucifixion, of the death of Christ? And you know what's fascinating? It's not only here in Matthew, in the passage that we read, or in the Gospels. We could go all the way back to the very first book of the Bible, in Genesis, chapter 3, verse 15. We would find the promise that there would come one called from the seed of the woman. You ever thought about that? Everybody knows that woman doesn't have the seed. Man has the seed. So even at that point, Genesis was talking about a virgin birth. Talking about the seed of the woman implanted by the Holy Spirit. And that one born of the seed of woman would bruise the serpent's head, and even though he himself would be bruised in the heel. That, of course, is referring to the fact that Christ, while being bruised on the cross, temporarily killed physically, will fatally bruise the one who bruises him. We could learn more about the meaning of the cross. We went further on into Genesis and come to the story of Abraham and Isaac. Abraham, called by God to offer his son on the altar as a sacrifice to God, finds that God provides an alternative, 
a ram caught in the thicket, and there we learn that there is to be a substitute for those who should be sacrificed. And we learn more about the cross. We then come to the books of Moses, uh, the rest of the the first five books of the Bible, and all the complicated details about the Mosaic law and all the ceremonies and the sacrifices that explains to us the need for bloodshed sacrifice to atone for sin. And we learn more about the cross. We come to Psalm 22 that we read last week, and we have the details about the crucifixion of the Lord. Isaiah 53, where the theology of the cross is explained, and in in Zechariah chapter 12 tells us uh, about the piercing of the one who is on the cross. And then we can go on into the New Testament, and, and we can read the words of Paul who tells us that on the cross, Christ was made a curse for us, and tells us that He bore our sin. We could read the words of Peter who says that He who was just bore sins for those of us who were unjust. We could go to the book of Revelation and listen to the words of the Apostle John where where he tells us that Jesus was a lamb slain from the foundation of the world. The whole epistle of Hebrews has been described as a great treatise on the meaning of the cross. So the meaning of the cross is explained clearly from the beginning to the end of scriptures all the way through. But I think there's one amazingly monumental description of the meaning of the cross that is often overlooked and oftentimes read every Easter season. And that's the one given in the text that Eric read for us this morning from Matthew 27. Now we're not going to anymore go from Genesis to Revelation to find the meaning of the cross this morning, we're going to just look at these eight verses here in Matthew. And we find that there are six miracles that take place. They take place within a few hours while Jesus is hanging on the cross. And those six miracles turn out to be God the Father's own commentary on the meaning of the cross. This is God's own testimony as to what the death of Christ there on the cross means. And the first of those miracles is the supernatural darkness. Notice verse 45 where it says, From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. Now going back to Jesus' birth and and the beginning of Jesus' earthly life here, Uh, Back in Luke chapter 2, where it tells us that when Christ was born, there was a great, what? Light that shone, and the Magi followed that light, and finally it rested over the house where Jesus was born. Isaiah said that when Jesus came, he would be, what? The light to the Gentiles. Uh, Jesus himself in John 8 said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. So associated with Christ in His birth, in His life, and in all of His ministry is light. But associated with His death is darkness. The Greek says, from the sixth hour, that's 12 noon, high noon, if you're a Western person. In the ninth hour, that's three in the afternoon, the time of day when the sun is at its highest, the brightest Now Mark chapter 15 verse 25 tells us Jesus was crucified at the third hour, which would be nine in the morning. So he's already been on the cross for three hours until noon. Three hours of daylight, 
from 9 to 12, during which he endured all that mocking and all the jeering and the taunting by the passers-by, by the, the Jewish religious leaders, by the Roman soldiers. And during those first three hours from 9 till noon, his silence is only broken three times. The first time is when Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. A little while later, he broke the silence when he told the repentant thief next to him, Truly I say to you, this day you'll be with me in paradise. And the third time was when he saw John, his beloved disciple, and his mother Mary standing there at the foot of the cross. And he knew that when he was gone, they'd just be kind of lost, and so he gave one to the other. Behold your mother, he said to John, and to Mary, behold your son. But apart from those three moments, there was silence from nine until noon. But now the second three hours begins, and all of a sudden, darkness came over all the land is what Scripture says, and it lasted for three hours, three hours of darkness. The Greek word used for land is a general, just kind of a general term. It it doesn't specify. It could mean country, it could mean earth, it could mean ground, it could mean land, it could mean world, uh, depending on the context. So was this localized, the darkness localized to Jerusalem or, or just the area of Israel, or was it the whole half of the world? that the sun happened to be shining on at that point. It doesn't specify. God could do either. He's God, right? See, since God created the universe, He can do anything He wants with science. Because it's His science. Listen carefully. God doesn't have to fit into man's science. Man's science has to fit into God. For example, back in Exodus chapter 10, darkness was localized. It's specific. God made it dark only in the land of Egypt. So he could create a localized darkness supernaturally if he wanted to. Uh, You'll remember the amazing story of Joshua back in chapter 10 where the Bible tells us the Lord did what? He made the sun stand still. That had to affect the whole globe. You remember in 2 Kings chapter 20 where the shadow of the sun on the sundial went backwards. Imagine that. God again does a miracle with the sun uh, with the revolving of the earth so he could do his work. And again, that would have had to affect the whole globe. So it may well be that the whole half of the world that was lighted by that sun became dark. We really don't know, but people have tried to explain it away in a number of different, different ways. Uh, maybe it just got really dark because really a dark cloud slowly moved across the sun. Or a huge dust storm. I've heard that, the, that it can almost get uh, uh, black there. A huge dust storm perhaps darkened everything. But I don't believe either one of those because Luke just says in chapter 23, verse 45, the sun was darkened. The sun was darkened, and he uses the word which refers to heavenly bodies as deprived of light. They were deprived of light. The word literally means to fail completely. The sun failed. That's what happened. God supernaturally turned the sun out. Well, maybe it was a solar, a total solar eclipse. I mean, that could do it, right? 
when the moon covers the light of the sun. But it couldn't have been a scientific eclipse for a number of reasons. The main one being is that the season of year that Passover is celebrated puts the sun and the moon on the opposite sides of the earth. And an eclipse can only take place when the sun and moon are on the same side. God's Word simply means what it says. The sun failed. The sun went out. It became as dark as midnight in the middle of the day. So he says, yeah, okay, big deal. (laughs) I, I get it. What does that mean? What's the significance? Well, it's interesting that none of the New Testament or Old Testament writers comment on the darkness at the cross of Christ. Why? Because they didn't need to. It was obvious to them. No explanation needed. You see, if you, if you were to dig back into the Old Testament, you would find that darkness is used in Scripture as a symbol of God's judgment. In Isaiah chapter 5, as Isaiah predicts the coming judgment in captivity of the people of Israel, he describes it as darkness and sorrow. If you continue through Isaiah, you'd find in chapter 13, where Isaiah is looking ahead to the final judgment that God is going to bring on the world. He says in verse 10, the stars of heaven and their constellation will not show their light. The rising sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. I will punish the world for its evil, the wicked for their sins. God is associating judgment with darkness. Even in the New Testament, do you remember when we studied Matthew chapter 24? In verse 29 it says, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, what's going to happen? The sun will be darkened. Again, yes, the sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. All throughout Scripture, darkness of that sort is associated with God's judgment. You'll find it in Joel, you'll find it in Amos, you'll find it in Zephaniah. If God's salvation is seen as light, then His judgment is seen as darkness. So I think it's clear that we see what we see here at the cross is a commentary on God's part that the cross is a place of judgment. It's a place for the pouring out of His divine wrath. You see, this is not just someone, uh, one of 30,000 people that had been crucified. This is not just a well-meaning martyr. This is not an unusually loving and wise man, you know, a really good man. No, this was the very son of the Almighty God. And God is depicting divine judgment in a very dramatic way by making it midnight in the middle of the day. Supernatural darkness, God's judgment. There's a second miracle that I want us to look at in verse 46. It says, About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, and the Greek says screamed or yelled, Eli, Eli, my God, my God. Now, Eli is a basic Hebrew name for God. Elohim is a full holy name of God. El Olam, the everlasting God. El Shaddai, Lord God Almighty. El Elyon, the Most High God. El Eli, my God. The people recognized it. The people recognized, they knew, the people had no doubt who he was calling to. I'll explain that in a second here. So when he cried out, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani, 
which Matthew says means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The people knew exactly what he was saying because they would have recognized it from Psalm chapter 22, verse 1 that we read last time, which was exactly a direct quote from Psalm 22. And this is actually where we see the second miracle, the divine separation. Kind of a strange miracle, perhaps, if you're thinking about miracles, but a miracle nonetheless, in a sense that it is supernatural, and it's an inexplicable event that is beyond the capacity of full human understanding, because God is separated from God. God the Father turns his back on God the Son. How is that possible when they're one? How could a loving God do that? It's kind of the question the world's always asking, isn't it? If God was really a God of love, if he really loved his only son, his beloved son, his, lo- his son who, in whom he is well pleased, how could he turn his back on him? How could he forsake him in his greatest time of need? Listen, if we go back to Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 13, it says this about God, Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. God turned his back because he can't look on what? He can't look on sin. Now, what does that tell us about the cross? This was God's statement in action that Christ was indeed bearing our sin and who did in fact become sin for us. And that God could not tolerate. Isaiah 53, 5 says he was pierced for our transgressions. Romans 4, 24 says he was delivered over to death for our sins. 1 Corinthians 15 says Christ died for our sins. 1 Peter 2, 24 says he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. We could go on and on. 1 John 4, Galatians 3, 2 Corinthians 5. Jesus himself said in Matthew 20, 28, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's why God turned his back. God could not look on sin. Okay, fine. Got that. But what kind of separation is this? How does that work? Well, it isn't a separation of nature, of his nature. He didn't cease to be God, and he, uh, or he, he would have ceased to exist because he can't not be who he is. He was not separated from the nature of God, nor was he separated from the Trinity. He was separated in terms of an intimate fellowship and communion with the Father. Kind of like a child who sins or does something gravely or, or severely wrong against his father. He never ceases to be the father's child, but does cease to know that intimate, loving relationship or communion. Now let me mention one, one more thing while we're on the subject of Christ and sin, and we alluded to it last week. It's something that we might not fully understand and, and Perhaps we can never fully understand it, but we need to mention it because it's important, and that is, while 
Christ bore our sin, bore all the sin, while, while Jesus took all the weight of all the sin of all the ages upon himself, he never became a sinner. How can I say that? Because in the midst of being engulfed in all the sins of all the ages, he never had a desire to sin. He never himself sinned. Even though all the sins of all the time was piled on him, he was not longing for that sin because his longings are expressed in the words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that's the evidence of the purity of his spirit, a purity which he knew was not tainted because um, right after having said, it is finished, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, knowing without a shadow of the doubt that God would receive him. Because though he bore sin, he never became a sinner. And that's why the writers of Hebrews can say that he was yet without sin. Made sin, and yet not sin. A paradox. But when he became sin, God had to turn his back on him. Now just a quick note to show you once again, the darkness and wickedness of the hearts of those the crowds that were around him there at the cross. When Jesus cried out, cried out, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani. Verse 47 tells us that when some of those standing there heard this, they said, ah, he's calling Elijah. Verse 49 tells us the rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. Two things. One, in their wickedness, they just kept taunting him. They couldn't leave it alone. In the midst of his torture, they couldn't let him be. Secondly, they purposely, listen, they purposely twisted his words to justify themselves. They had painted themselves so far back into a corner that unless they justified themselves, they would have to admit that they were wrong and he was right. Awful hard to do. When you make strong statements. So what happened? When Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That again was a direct quote from Psalm 22. One, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Word for word. There was absolutely no mistaking it. They knew the quote well. And they had to twist it to justify themselves, to try to get the crowd going and to justify themselves and to make themselves feel better. You see, the Greek for Elijah is Elias, not Eli. You say, oh, come on, Pastor. Yeah, it's so close. You know, stuff going on is getting dark. Maybe they heard wrong. No. There's no possible way. Not when Psalm 22 says Eli, Eli. They knew, no mistaking. It was sheer, wicked taunting from the darkened hearts that could not admit the truth. Now, it's at that point that the other gospel writers tell us that Jesus said, I thirst. I thirst. Because a parching thirst is part of that horrible crucifixion process and the torture of it. And this was the fourth time the silence of Calvary was broken by Jesus. And verse 48 here in Matthew picks it up and says, Immediately one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on his staff, and offered to Jesus to drink. That was kind of their Gatorade of the day. Uh, just kind of keep, keep them going and, and refresh them. Interesting. It's just momentary act of kindness by one of the soldiers. 
But the crowd couldn't help themselves even in that, and they yelled at him for even doing that. Stop it! Leave him alone, they said. Let's see if Elijah can come and save him. You know, you would have thought that the three hours of sudden darkness and what they knew from the Old Testament about God, God's judgment and darkness, you would have thought that maybe that would have given them pause just for a moment. But no, they were too invested in their wickedness. But there's a third miracle that takes place here, and we'll call it voluntary death. Verse 50 says, And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. Now, the word for loud voice here is to scream, to yell out loudly. Is that important? Well, yes, actually, because that's part of the evidence of the miracle that just uh, took place. You see, when a man who is crucified is about to die, and that can last for two or three days, they no longer have the strength to push up on their legs, to, to, uh, to open up the restriction on their diaphragm for them to even take a breath. And if you have no breath, you can barely breathe. You can hardly whisper, much yet yell out with a loud voice. But Jesus still had enough strength to yell out. And every time he spoke on the cross, except for the words, I thirst, it's described as yelling them out with a loud voice and therefore with strength. And I believe he does this to demonstrate that he still has the physical resources to stay alive. In John 19.30, it tells us that he cried out, It is finished. And having cried that, according to Luke 23, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He said them both with a loud voice. And at that point, Matthew says he gave up his spirit. Now let me explain something to clarify what took place there. In 15 other places in Scripture where it talks about someone giving up the spirit, It's always one Hebrew word or one Greek word that's used, except in the case of Jesus. Both Matthew and John use two words, and by using those two words, they are telling us that it was not just Jesus expiring or breathing his last breath, but that it was a handing over, a giving up, a sending away of his spirit. Why is that important? Because this then became an act of volition, an act of the will on Jesus' part. He literally sent his spirit away as an act of his own will. It was a voluntary act. That's the the amazing thing about this third miracle on the cross. Jesus' life was not taken from him. He voluntarily gave up his life. You see, Jesus not only had the power to take up his life at the resurrection when he rose from the dead, but he also had the power to lay down his life whenever he wanted. No one has that power any more than they have the power to raise himself from the dead. Well, you can shoot yourself, but then you've given the power to the bullet. You can take poison, Romeo and Juliet, right? But then you've given power to the poison, You can throw yourself off a bridge, but then you've given the power to gravity and the pavement below. 
No one can, by their own volition, in the moment of time, will their own death any more than they can will their own resurrection. But Jesus did, because he has power over death, and he has power over life. And he is making a statement here about the fact that no one was taking his life, he was giving it. Jesus' statement in Mark 10.45 makes even more sense now when he said, "For, For the Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom for many. In John chapter 10, you may remember him saying in verse 11, I am the good shepherd, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. In verse 15, I lay down my life for the sheep. Verse 17, 18, I lay down my life only to take it back up again. No one takes it from me, Jesus said, but I lay it down of my own accord. Christ's voluntary death. Miracle. Now at that very moment of his death, three instantaneous miracles take place. Look at verse 51. And this is the fourth of these six miracles in this section. We'll call this one sanctuary devastation, for lack of a better term. The Greek says, and behold. It's not usually there. It's not there in the NIV. But the Greek says, and behold. A word of amazement indicates that whatever took place was shocking. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now that was not coincidental. Wasn't it an accident? Somebody didn't trip and fall into the curtain and it ripped. God was making a statement. As you know, within the temple at large, there, there is the, uh, holy, the holy place. That's where the priests are allowed to go in and do all the sacrifices. And then within the holy place is in a room called the Holy of Holies. And dividing that Holy of Holies was the, uh, the, the veil or the curtain that hung in, in front. Now this was not just any old curtain. It was a massive and beautifully decorated curtain. How big was it? I'm glad you asked because I've got an answer here. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2 records that Solomon's temple back in the Old Testament was 30 cubits high. That would have been 45 feet tall. The first century Jewish historian Josephus records this. Herod extended the temple's height to 40 cubits high, about 60 feet tall, twice as high as a peak here in the sanctuary. It was also 30 feet wide. That's the width of our sanctuary. That's how big this curtain was. Then Josephus also records that the veil or curtain was four inches thick. And apparently it took about 300 priests to maneuver that thing. Now, as we know, the Holy of Holies represented what? The presence of God. And once a year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would try to lift corner of that heavy curtain, hurry in, sprinkle the blood on the altar of the Lamb, and, and, and uh, get back out as quickly as possible. But you know, no sacrifice really ever fully atoned for sin. Because no lamb, no goat, no ram, no turtle dove, no pigeon, no sacrifice was ever sufficient because no one could ever keep the whole law of God. And because no man's righteousness was ever adequate, nobody had access to God. Why? He couldn't look on sin. The curtain was a massive symbol of man's separation 
from God. And in the instant that Jesus died, God took his finger, if you will, and ripped it from the top to bottom. Now remember, at that moment, the temple would have been filled with pilgrims that had come into Jerusalem for the Passover. Filled with priests, filled with sacrifices, everything going on for the, for the Passover. And all of a sudden, to the horror of everyone, the Holy of Holies is completely exposed. Can you imagine the shock? And what God is saying is this, in the death of Jesus Christ, there is now total access to my presence. Why? Because Jesus paid the price. He paid the full price in full. This is the Father's own commentary on the meaning of the cross. God throws His arms wide open and says, Come, all you who are weary and burdened. Come into my presence. And because of what was accomplished on the cross and the tearing of that curtain, the writer of Hebrews in chapter 4, verse 16, says it so beautifully, Let us come boldly. Let us come boldly to the throne to receive mercy and grace for help in time of need. The great truth is that, yes, the cross is a place of God's wrath. The cross is a place where Jesus became sin, and that's why God had to turn his back. But the cross, the cross is also the place where true forgiveness for sin was accomplished. Christ died, the old covenant came to an end. And this is God saying, now this is my new covenant through the blood of my son, Jesus Christ. And I throw open my holy presence to all who come in the name of Christ and have their sins forgiven. I want you to notice the fifth miracle. Verse 51, the earth shook and the rock split. I believe God the Father had something else to say here. And he said it without an audible voice. This was said in a physical way. He caused a destructive earthquake to, to happen to the city of Jerusalem and the surrounding areas, which caused rocks to split and the ground to break open. What was he saying? What was the point of this? Was this actually really God speaking? Well, if you look back again in the Old Testament, it's amazing how Old Testament and New Testament all come together. Oftentimes when God appeared or when He spoke, there was an earthquake. We find Him in Exodus 19 appearing on the Mount Sinai with Moses and the mountain began to shake. We find another earthquake in His presence as 1 Kings 19. Another time when God appeared in 2 Samuel 22, there's an earthquake. In Psalm chapter 18 and chapter 77, it says the earth and quaked, and the foundations of the mountains shook. Isaiah 29, Jeremiah 10, Nahum chapter 1, God makes the earth shake at His presence. So what happens at the cross? And what is God saying here? Well, I think this is a precursor of things to come. You remember when we studied Matthew chapter 24 and 25 about the, the day of judgment and, and uh, about the tribulation? We delved into some of the prophets and then also looked at the book of Revelation. We found a promise that God has made to the world, and that is that someday our world, as we know it, and our surrounding universe are all going to be shaken and shaken to the point of destruction. 
In Revelation as well as in Isaiah, it tells us that the stars are going to fall. The constellations are going to come apart. The Bible talks about the sun and moon being extinguished. It tells about the earth shaking and it will be a great shaking in the final judgment. Yeah, but pastor, how, how, how do you know for sure that that's what was happening at the cross? Because the writer of the book of Hebrews, through the inspiration by the Holy Spirit, tells us. Listen, chapter 12, starting at verse 26. See to it that you do not refuse him who speak. Who's he talking about? Jesus. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, when Jesus was on the earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? At that time, when? The cross. At that time, his voice shook the earth. At what time? At the time of the cross, when the earth shook and the rock split. How? By his voice, God spoke at the cross. At that time, his voice shook the earth. But now, the Hebrews writer goes on to say, now he has promised once more, looking ahead, once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more, the Hebrews, uh, Hebrews writer says, indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. And that's when God then creates a whole new heaven and a whole new earth. I believe when God shook the earth at the death of Christ, he was giving the world a taste of what he's going to do in the future. When he shakes the earth in a time of the return of the king himself in the final judgment. You remember in John chapter 19, verse 30, where John tells us that Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. You know, folks, when, I, when Jesus, God the Son, cried out, it is finished, I believe God the Father also said, it is finished with an earthquake. It was God's exclamation mark on his plan of salvation. It was God's mic drop moment. It is finished. One day, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. It's one more miracle. One more miracle that God does in his final commentary on the cross. He defeated death. Uh, verse 51. The earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke, broke open. Now, the tombs being broken open, not exactly the miracle. That could have happened with the earthquake. That's what happens. The miracle is in the next verse. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. Folks, there was a resurrection, <laughs> a resurrection that took place, a bodily resurrection. The word body is a Greek word soma, a physical body. It's not talking about a spirit. It's not talking about a ghost. The bodies of many, not all, interestingly enough, the bodies of many, I believe they were the saints from the Old Testament times. We don't know exactly who they were. It doesn't tell us. It doesn't really matter. That wasn't the point. So why did this happen? Again, I think this is another statement by God. 
This is a resurrection, a real, literal, physical, bodily, glorified resurrection. So why? What's the purpose of that? Well, the next verse says, They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. Can you imagine that? (laughs) Why? Why were they raised from the dead and why do they appear to many people? I believe they were testifying to the resurrection of Jesus and to the resurrection of the dead in Christ. Folks, I believe this was a miracle for the believers. A miracle for the believers. And let me tell you why. First of all, note that these saints did not come out of the tombs until after the resurrection. The tombs were broken open, but the saints didn't actually come out until after the resurrection of Jesus, Matthew tells us. And the Apostle Paul tells us why in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits, the first one, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Christ was the first. He had to be the first to come out of the tomb. Then he was followed by many of the saints to testify to the resurrection that is provided by Christ, telling people of the hope and glory that we have. And I don't think they spoke to anybody except those who already believed. And I say that because there is no biblical evidence that Christ ever presented himself to any others than who believed after his resurrection. Though it doesn't specifically say, I could imagine that they went in and told people, hey, Christ is alive. And his being alive is a guarantee that you too will live. And and we're living proof of that. Amazing miracle. We were dead and have been given new life. Huh, what does that sound like? I believe that was a physical illustration of the spiritual truth that Paul gives us in Ephesians chapter 2. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. But God made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. How? By the cross. By the cross, by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. God's commentary on the cross. We see the wrath and judgment of God, yes, depicted in the supernatural darkness. We see the holiness of God in turning away from sin because Christ took our sin upon Himself. We see God's loving grace and mercy as Jesus in a voluntary act of self-sacrifice gives His life to redeem unworthy mankind. And then we see the curtain in the temple ripped from top to bottom as God as God says, a way of access is now open. Your sins are dealt with, and, uh, and you can come in the name of Jesus Christ, and I will welcome you and receive you as one of my own. And then we see the earthquake, which reminds us of the final judgment yet to take place. But then, at the same time, we see the resurrection of the saints. The resurrection of the saints, which gives us confidence that we too would be given new life and will reign with Jesus Christ when he comes as the King of kings and Lord of lords. That, folks, is God's own testimony, God's own commentary by supernatural power as to the meaning of the death of his Son on the cross. There's a place where mercy reigns and never dies. 
There's a place where streams of grace flow deep and wide, where all the love I've ever found comes like a flood, comes flowing down. At the cross, at the cross, I surrender my life. Father, this morning, I pray that that will be our desire this morning. That at the cross of Jesus Christ, your amazing love and grace and mercy was poured out upon us as your wrath was poured out upon your Son. And as he paid the price for our sin, we now have access to you, to your Son, to the Holy Spirit, to heaven. Father, I pray that if there is one listening here this morning that has not made that decision, or perhaps they have stepped away from you, stepped away from the church, if they've got some kind of understanding, perhaps they, they were in the church previously at some point, Father, you are calling them to say, I, I still love you, even though you have stepped away, perhaps you've rebelled against me, I love you, come back. My arms are open wide. The curtain is, is, was split. I, my son paid the price for you. At the cross, at the cross, I surrender my life. May that be our prayer. May that be our desire this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.